You're listening to episode 175 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it's the 3rd of December 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. And we have a big Christmas tree up in the Great Hall. We do. Yesterday, we finally got our lovely festive tree up in the Great Hall. So I'm feeling, I'm finally feeling a bit Christmassy. It's been a while since we've seen a lovely big tree up in the Great Hall at Dragon Hall, and it's looking very cosy and lovely. Yes, absolutely. Um, What are you reading at the moment, Steph? I've just finished a book, actually. I finished a book last night. It is the, the latest book by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who wrote, who I think I spoke about Taylor Jenkins Reid and reading her book, Daisy Jones and the Six, a little while ago on the podcast. And I've just finished her most recent book, Malibu Rising, which was a a bit of a different read for me because I I read a lot of serious dark things. This was a bit more sun-kissed, sort of big family drama on the beach, the house getting trashed, that sort of thing. Very sort of California dreaming in a way. Um, So I've just finished that and I'm doing a complete flip. And I'm now reading The Lottery and Other Stories by Shirley Jackson, (laughs) which is completely other end of the spectrum but uh it's for some reason one of the the collections of Shirley Jackson's writing that I haven't read before so I'm dipping into that at the moment how about you Simon like that you're just creating like reader whiplash for yourself there I I do it all the time I got my Spotify wrapped the other day and that every year it's like you're the only person in existence who moved from this pop act to this extremely loud band and it's (laughs) yeah I contain multitudes nice yeah well I'm currently reading Neon magazine which is something that Flo introduced me to. And uh, I just received my first issue. And this is a, it's a literary magazine, but it kind of specializes in speculative and science fiction and that kind of stuff. And it's a mixture of poetry and photographs and artwork and short stories. And yeah, really interesting and a lovely production quality as well. And what I didn't realize when I ordered this one, that the theme of this particular issue is uh, City. And it came with a cool fold-out map. Ah uh, yes, you were you were showing me this on camera. It looked amazing. I know, yeah. So I've not had time to dig into all the contents of the magazine yet, but I'll report back once I've read more. On that note, actually, I should probably give a special shout out to the latest issue of Hinterland, which is the best new creative nonfiction. And in the the latest issue, issue nine, there is a nonfiction essay by our very own former colleague, Alice Kent, who has been on the podcast before interviewing writers. And she's written a wonderful piece in there, which again is quite dark. So I'm learning more about her through her creative writing now. Um, but yes, that's Hinterland's absolutely wonderful and people should pick it up if they're interested in creative nonfiction. We highly recommend it. So many brilliant little magazines full of amazing stuff. I know. And one day, Steph, we're going to talk about fanzines on here as well. I would absolutely love to. It's uh, it's a nice little passion project of mine. And I think it's, yeah, zines are something that are have been around for a very long time, but people are doing amazing, wonderful, innovative things with them all the time. So yeah, let's definitely have a chat about that one day. Yep. Early 2022. Stay tuned. Okay. On the podcast today, we are talking with Nicola May. Nicola is fascinating in that she's had a very successful self-publishing career, uh, but this year has published the first two books in a trilogy with Hodder and Stoughton. So it's a very unusual mixture of self-publishing and traditional publishing and kind of going back and forth between the two. Nicola specialises in romantic comedy. So you might have heard of her Cuckleberry Bay series or more recently the work she's done with Hodder is the Ferry Lane Market stuff. Yeah, so there's loads of tips in here for people who want to try self-publishing but also 
who want to find out how to get in with a publisher as well. And it kind of proves the point that these days it's not an either or thing. You can actually kind of jump between the two depending on what suits particular projects. Wonderful. So let's hand over to Nicola. Nicola, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Absolute pleasure. I was very nearly late for this interview talking with you because I I foolishly checked Twitter and then followed your link to Millie Johnson's blog about women's fiction. And uh, that then led me down a rabbit hole, (laughs) which very nearly delayed this. And it reminded me actually of uh, the recent New York Times kind of similar issue where instead of women's fiction and and romance, it was science fiction, where they uh, credited Jules Verne as creating the genre and kind of forgot about Mary Shelley and uh, some of some of the earlier female writers. And yeah, it was an interesting topic. I mean, uh, presumably that's something that you, you've bumped into a lot in your career. Yeah, I've bumped into it a lot and people don't like the term chick lit. I mean, I don't even mind it. I say that I write chick lit with a kick because it isn't all fluffy. And I think people do have this generalised opinion that people who write... Um, the coffee shop on the corner, or in my example, the corner shop in Cockerbury Bay, that it isn't going to have substance. And um, a line that was said to me the other day was, it's actually really hard to write an easy reading book. And Mm -hmm. I concur with that. We still have to do, we we write a good book, start to finish, middle end, keep people enthralled. Um, It's no different. I mean, yeah, it's not Ulysses, but who actually wants to read Ulysses? So, (laughs) Yeah, a good book (laughs) is hard to write, regardless of of the style or the genre, isn't it? Yeah. Later on, we're going to talk about how you've changed your publishing approach this year. Uh, But first, I kind of wanted to rewind back to the start and uh, just find out kind of when you first decided to become a writer, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have some great story that from four years old, (laughs) I've had this massive dream to become a writer. But um, actually, I started late. It wasn't until my 30s. Um, Still didn't really have an urge. I was dared to run a half marathon and I was a real party girl. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to really try and run this marathon, but I'm going to write a diary about the training. And I wrote this diary and it actually was really quite funny. And it kind of gave me the bug for writing. And um, I always say I didn't finish the diary, but I finished the marathon. Um, But then I started writing and yeah, and I literally kept writing. I just thought I've got to get some books down. I'm really enjoying this. And it was sort of way back in like the early 2000s when nothing was really, there wasn't self-publishing then. There mm. was, everything was via manuscript to agents and things. There wasn't any email even. So, um, yeah, I I was lucky in the fact though, I found the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which I guess is the Bible for everyone starting out with writing and anyone listening, if they haven't got it, I insist you do. And I went through all the agents that liked romantic comedy And I sent 18 letters off and I got 17 rejections. And all of a sudden, with this first book I'd written, I got a yes from this agent and I couldn't believe it. And the book was called Starfish, about a Piscean woman who couldn't find love, so dated each sign of the Zodiac. (laughs) Luckily enough, the reader at the agency was a Piscean, absolutely loved it. And the story goes on. Her name's Joan Deach and she's stayed as my editor since then all those years. So I just think... fate whatever you want to say you do make your own luck but it kind of that was such an in for me but that agent literally two years um tried to place me and couldn't and then let me go but I didn't give up I did keep writing I decided to self-publish and literally just went on the internet and I can't remember the guy's name but there literally was one post telling you how to self-publish 
And I followed it word for word. And I managed to get my books printed and I got my lovely upload ready for Amazon. And um, yeah, just did it all by myself. Yeah. So what, what year would that have been? Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think now. It must have been kind of when was it all kicking off? Was that sort of mid 2000s? I guess that's when it started to become possible. Yeah. As, as a thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't until 2011 that I did sort of get everything properly up and running and started my Twitter profile and everything seriously. Um, but still then I was only sort of selling a couple of hundred copies a month and thought that was amazing. And then in 2013, after I sort of set that up, a publisher did approach me. They were a small publisher and they said, we want you for a seven book deal. And I was like, oh, this is it. I was mm. literally screaming. I was running around the room um, and I thought, this is it. But a lot of writers don't know that when you're with a publisher, they take 90% of paperback sales, 75% of ebook sales. So even if you're doing averagely well, you're not making enough money to just be an author. And I think because my site was always to be a number one best-selling author, I had this inner drive and ambition. I was not happy with being with a publisher. So I managed to get my rights back. And then I kind of thought, what am I going to do? I, I need to sort of get out there again, but I don't like being with a publisher. And then I think by that time, it was a lot easier to be on Amazon and I happened to go to the London Book Fair that year. And again, unlike some authors, I, I go out to everything, even though the London Book Fair isn't really for authors, I don't think, unless you're speaking or kind of sort of a higher echelon. And um, I'd missed the talk on the Amazon KDP stand and I really wanted to hear it. And it was the managing director. And I happened, I thought, oh, I've missed it. My train was late. I thought, I'm going to go on their stand anyway. And, and as it happened, the guy who'd done the talk was there. And I said, could you give me 10 minutes of your time? Anyway, he gave me half an hour of his time. And he carefully explained the best ways to promote myself on the platform. I boldly gave him my book and said, this is just coming out, the corner shop in Cockerbury Bay. I'd love it if someone could have a look at it. Thinking, There's no way anyone would. Anyway, mm. I don't know if he looked at it. But the tools that I was given and that chat I had that day um, – kind of saw me going up the chart slightly. Mm -hmm. And then that was in April 2018. And then in January 2019, I got to number one on Amazon. And as a self-published author, I, it was a bit of a phenomenon. And I kept checking my platform and like I was selling 2,000 books a day. I kept phoning my sister going, oh my God, it might be wrong. There's 2,000 <laughs> a day. And it was like an electric meter of books. And now, because I haven't got to number one since then, I realise how extraordinary it was and what a success and achievement it was. Yeah, I haven't looked back since. So from kind of three months after that, I was able to give up my day job. And now I do write full time. That's amazing. And so the book that uh, really took off, that was the first in the Cockleberry Bay series. Is that right? Yeah. And that was my ninth novel. So it's yes. kind of, I just didn't give up. Yeah. So it sounds like you were kind of coming into self-publishing at kind of the, exactly the right time as it was yeah. all maturing and, and becoming something that you could do seriously, essentially. Yes. Writing those initial nine books, what was your kind of writing routine like? So at that point, you still had a day job by the sounds of yeah. things. How, how are you balancing like the marketing and the business side and the writing and doing everything else yeah. in your life? I mean, my, write, my work career um, was marketing and PR. And I think I'm lucky in that way as well because a lot of authors don't have that skill. But I would write before work. If I was in a boring contract, I'd write during work behind <laughs> my screen. 
Um, I would take holiday to edit and things like that because I thought I needed a sort of big chunk of time. Yeah, I would just write whenever I could. And I'm a real early bird, so a lot of early morning writing. Somehow managed it. And also I used to travel with my job, so I had a lot of sort of airport downtime. You can write a lot when you're on a plane. And and with The Corner Shop in Cockleberry Bay, which I think was the first in the series, what do you think, like, what was the difference? So obviously you'd been uh, trying all these different promotional and marketing tactics and yeah. over the each book you presumably learn stuff but yeah. was there something specific about that book or was it timing or did you do something different what do you think I think I did what I never really wanted to do and as I went I went with the market and mm. I was thinking because I'd written love me tinder about the dating app, I thought what an amazing title that's going to just rock <laughs> the world um the dating with the star signs Somebody did 12 jobs in 12 months. I was thinking these are amazing, clever ideas, but I didn't need that amazing, clever idea. I needed to look in the top 20 of rom-com and what was working. Mm -hmm. And there were all these twee books. And the good thing about self-publishing is you can turn yourself around and say, I can write a book in three months, have it on the shelf in six. I thought I'll do that. And my dad's actually an artist. He's 84 now, and he still designs my covers, even now I'm with Hodder. And he'd actually bought a picture of a corner shop round, which was a little sweet shop round the corner. And it used to sell shops when I was a little girl in sweets in the 70s. And he handed me this picture. I said, Dad, thank you for the picture. And you've given me the most amazing idea. I'm going to write a book about a corner shop. I thought of Chocolat and all the wonderful magic with that. And then I thought, I know Devon and Cornwall quite well. I'm going to throw it down there. And it was as simple as that. It yeah. was the market. But also, I yeah, I made it more about community. I brought characters in that were old, young, damaged. I didn't put um, a typical chiclet heroine in, I don't think. She was 26. She was a foster girl. She was a swearer. She was a little fighter. She wasn't a typical heroine. And she turned her life around. Um it's really hard to pinpoint why it went to number one. Mm. But something caught the magic and the reviews started coming. And when the reviews start coming, you know that people are going to buy it. And also, once it's in the Amazon chart, even if it's top 50, you sell books. And that's what I try and say to people I talk to outside of podcast things is, if you can get that book into any Amazon chart, and also, and people don't want to hear this always, just stick with Amazon KDP. It's a no-brainer if you're starting out. Yeah, you mm-hmm. could go to Kobo and sell a few on iTunes. But if you're unknown, Amazon have that platform where you can do all your promotions. Um, they look after you, basically. If, they, if you are just with them, they give you the tools to, to be successful. Yeah, so your, your experience of, of working with that platform sounds extremely positive. Oh, oh, 100%. And it's so easy to use. I mean, I'm a complete technophobe. And um. <laughs> It's just so simply laid out. And then if you have problems, there's the help and there's the forums and there's like a little university section to learn more. Um, The only thing I can't get my head around is Amazon advertising because it's just so bitty and this click to whatever. And I've tried for years and I'm, yeah, I'm not very good at it. Well, it sounds like you maybe don't need to do it too much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was going to ask actually about, because, you know, your, your books, this this was the big shift, wasn't it, in self-publishing, which was all of a sudden you could self-publish a book that was largely indistinguishable from a traditionally published book um, yeah. uh, and would come across, you know, it was a professionally produced product, essentially. Yeah. And I was going to ask how you w- went about doing that. And you mentioned that your dad actually 
creates the fun covers. Yeah. So did you have other people that you worked with while producing yeah, the books? I mean, or? He, he only created the covers from the Cockleberries, actually. The others, I literally would go onto like an iStock, which for people listening, it's like an image library. And I would just pick an image and buy it for, say, £10, £15. And then I was lucky that a friend of mine was a graphic designer. So I used to throw him the image. I said, let's sort out a brand sort of font for me. And he used to put it together. Mm. So if you haven't got a huge budget, um, you can pay a graphic designer and just get stock images. They kind of work for me for a while. Um, but I didn't ever have a big team of people around me. Um, weirdly, the graphic designer's wife, um, she worked for a printer which was local in Woodley. And I said, I want my book to look exactly like this one. I want it the same size because a lot of self-published books are that little bit off. Mm. I also read up that um, so it looks professionally self-published. You must put a logo on the spine. That's how I can often tell self-published books, even if you make up something. I My little Noel publishing is mine. I put the word Noel. Um, it was just I wanted to make it as perfect as possible. I, I think heaviness now, books are so light it was quite heavy to post, and that's something else people don't think of. And also envelope size. You want something that's standard because postage and packing adds up if you're selling a few. And it's little things yeah. like that. Um, also, with covers, etc., you look at your genre. You're not going to put some pink pastel thing on a thriller. And I think another massive thing is genre. If you're not in a set genre, even if you're a little bit off that you're thriller with romance or something that isn't going to work on Amazon either you have to separate your genre because of all like the charts mm. um and I think stick to your genre because the more that you write the better you get I can honestly say that my last book is obviously a lot better than the first one I wrote because you learn your craft yeah so as well as doing presumably the the digital ebooks through KDP you also had the, the books available in print as well yeah. so how, how how was that managed was that did you have big uh, big stacks of books in your house or yeah so I used to get probably do a print run I think the most was probably about 300 at that time yeah so in my spare room I had boxes of books and I was on like the Amazon seller program where they send you an email and it's wonderful because they pay you the postage as well and then yeah I was just trips to the post office or I also boldly had walked on the um, Bertram stand at the London Book Fair many years ago and just chatted up someone on there. And I said, I want to be stopped by you. And he said, it's not as easy as that. I said, can you give me a chance? They did. So then I had orders coming in from Bertram's and sometimes say I'd have to send 50 books to them. And um, so I'd just get a courier to pick them up. So, yeah, it was a proper little cottage industry. And it wasn't until um, Cockleberry started going mad that um, – Scott Pack approached me because he'd kind of been a real supporter right through my self-publishing career and said to me, he'd written something on his blog, me and my big mouth saying, if somebody doesn't pick up this girl, they're mad kind of thing. It's such a good book. He came, he said, I said, do you want to have a coffee? I want to say thank you for all your help. And we sat there and he was working for iBooks then. And he said, look, can we have your paperback so you can keep your ebook rights? Absolute gold to me. I didn't lose those rights, which are obviously big for me. And someone mm -hmm. would manage all of that printing and process. And yes, of course, I don't make as much as doing it myself. But being honest, I only ever drew even on paperbacks when I did it myself. Because people don't realise that, say, you sell via a distributor, they will give you £3 something for your seven ninety nine book. It's a percentage. Even if you go into an independent bookshop, they're going to take 35% off you. So... 
it's really hard and I can see why bookshops struggle in a way as well because the margins are so tight yeah no everything everything gets squeezed at every yeah, it level really doesn't does. it with the the Cockleberry Bay books um you know looking on Amazon now for example the the, the books you published prior to that series have you know several hundred reviews and then you look mm. at the Cockleberry Bay books and they have seven thousand yeah. reviews and I'm just curious that yeah how did you what was it like having that sudden level of kind of public scrutiny and people being very loud and open about your books? At first, um, when I get horrendous, got a horrendous one star, it would affect me and I'd want to reply because you can reply to every review. I had one saying, um, oh, I bet she's sitting in a cafe in Chelsea patting herself on the back that she's done so well for writing such trash. And this part of me going, actually, I'm sitting on a yacht in the south of France. Thanks, mate. But um, <laughs> not that I am. But I, I, it was difficult. But I quite like it now because the most the concurrent theme that runs is that I swear too much in my books, and the American audience are really a lot more prudy than the UK audience. So note that. Um, but I'm not going to change the way I write. It is in my mind sometimes, but then sometimes I throw a real swear at it just to annoy people. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, presumably it helps because you know, you're glancing at the reviews, they're they're overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, <laughs> so that makes it easier. Yeah. yeah, but I'm still terrified that the next book is not going to be good, and there's suddenly going to be one where those reviews aren't happening. And even though with Hodder, a huge publisher, you'd hope to think they wouldn't let anything out that's not good. Um, the third in the series. Rainbow's End in Fairy Lane Market is out in April and I've kind of written a book I've really wanted to write. So it'd be interesting to see if people like it as much as mm. the others. Yes. No, I guess even after doing it for years and, you know, many, many books, uh, no author ever really knows what people are going to think until no. it's out in the wild. Oh, I so have the fear every time before one comes out. Yeah. What kind of connection do you have? I mean, at, when you were a self-published author in particular, but what kind of yeah. connection do you have with your readers? So I think this is what's helped as well. Every single person who messages me, I respond personally, whether it be Instagram. I've had some lovely emails through lockdown saying, thank you so much, you've helped me through. Um, mm. In fact, April 2020, I sold more books than I've ever done in a singular month. I think it was something like 82,000 books in a month. Oh, wow. Um, because of lockdown. And I myself was reading more and a lot of um, audio books as well. So it made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think because I am so accessible and I think for other authors who are starting out and anyone listening here, if you want to message me, I will happily freely give advice. I don't think anything is competition in writing, even sort of the, the girls on my level in romance. We all support each other because the person who's going to buy my book is probably going to buy their book too anyway. Yeah, yeah, there's no shortage of readers is there there's no, enough to go around I mean that's the thing and that's what I think about because, oh, I've saturated my readership of course you haven't there's like however many million people in the UK and I have only just scratched the surface mm. obviously not all of them are going to read my genre but no and actually you've translated a lot of your books as well uh, I noticed how yeah how did that come about so Lorella Belli is my foreign rights agent and now my main agent as well um I knocked on her door in 2010. I said, hello, I'm Nicola May. I've just started writing and I want my books to be translated, please. And she said, thank you so much, but you haven't got any record. <laughs> and then I knocked on the door again when I was with Accent Press and she said, sorry, 
anyway, when the book got to number one, she knocked on my door. She said, I'm ready for you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so she's amazing. She she gets the way I work. And, yeah, she's now signed the Ferry Lane Market trilogy already to Estonia and Holland. Mm. Um, and, again, I do think with foreign rights as well, I think once the country sees maybe someone else is doing it, it's quite a snowball. I mean, because Russia is one on my list. It's not actually been printed yet, but it, I just think – Corner Shopping, Cockerbury Bay being translated into Russian. But then fundamentally, my books are about relationships and love, and that translates worldwide. We cover a lot of translation at the National Centre for Writing. It's a big part of what we do and and talking about how you translate cultural references and that kind of thing when it goes to different markets oh, is always yeah. fascinating. So, yeah, I'm curious about how some of yours would be translated. Yeah, and I have that in mind now. Um, if I actually say sort of English sort of ant and deck or something like that, would that translate? But then I sometimes think I don't want to change it because my British audience are my main audience. So, and I just hope, because I'm in the hands of all these people, that they are doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, you'll never know. <laughs> yeah, but then again, also going to the the beast that is Amazon and the magical beast in my eyes. Amazon Publishing Germany have translated um, two of the corner shop and they're doing extremely well hmm. because it's Amazon Germany. And sort of they and Amazon went once they publish you, they can put you on their deals and things as well. Interesting. So with those ones, Amazon actually handled the translation to German. Yes. Looking over the the publication dates of the of the Cockleberry books in particular, you clearly write very fast yes. and publish quickly as well. Yeah. yeah. In terms of, I mean, a lot of writers that we work with, you know, writers who uh, are not yet published, you know, uh, it's often a challenge to complete one book. You know, that yeah. first book can be so difficult. Um, so what's, I don't say what's your secret, but, you know, how do you approach uh, just getting the words down to the quality that you want them to be? I think, and people are going to cringe at this, don't aspire to perfection. I think just just get it down and then have a good editor because they're going to pick up any bloopers. But I, I just think, I think sort of organic writing that comes from the heart, I think if people worry too much, is that sort of structured? I've never been to a writing course in my life. My edits just came back from Hodder and it's like, you, you've done this from a POV. What's POV? Look at all these things. Like a point of view of someone else in a chapter and this shouldn't happen and whatever. And I just think, I, I think because I write completely ignorant of any structure, I just flow with it. I think if I had to think about all these different things, I probably wouldn't be so good. Also, I think set time, If it, I mean, a lot of, I was, I'm not married, I haven't got kids, and I wrote, obviously, I had more time. I think if you don't have so much free time as that, do allocate an hour to, to get things down and stick to that hour. We all say, oh, we haven't got time. Well, don't sort of watch your favourite programme that night. Right, if you're really dedicated to the cause, we have so much more time than we realise in life. And it's like people say, well, I haven't got time to go for a walk. And actually, if you set your alarm for six, I know it's dark, you could do it six to 6.30. Um, I think I have been very dedicated to get where I am. And, and I think, yeah, you have to be. Uh, it's amazing how much time you can carve out once you start paying attention to all the all the little bits and pieces you do during the day that are not really necessary, yeah. that you can swap for writing. <laughs> I know, and I get the time I've used my um, phone for. Sometimes it's four hours where I've been scrolling. I think four hours. It's like, <laughs> I wish I had like a little alarm. I wonder if you can set one where you've looked at it for 10 minutes and you get pushed off it. I'd quite like that. Yeah, yeah no, um, I've got something on my phone if, I, if I'm if i on Twitter oh, really? for more than like five minutes, it starts hassling me. 
Yeah. I mean, I do have to say, when I started out, I was on Twitter for hours a day, and I built up a lot of personal relationships with people. And I wonder if that helped me as well, um, where almost people become friends and they help you and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I've also been very bold. It's a bit like getting a, a Bertram's contract is pretty out there. I also walked into Waterstones in Windsor, my local Waterstones, when my very first book came out, and I handed it to a woman who was serving there. I said, can you stop me? And she laughed. She said, no, but I'll read it. Well, anyway, she contacted me two days later via Twitter because I'd spoken to her. Oh, no, I hadn't. She'd found me. She said, um, come and do a signing on Saturday. And I went, what? She said, yeah, come, bring your books. So anyway, all friends, all family, I rung them up, said, you're coming. I said, you've got to buy books. I sold 42 copies on a Saturday in Windsor Waterstones. She then emailed every South branch. She said, this girl's good. Get her in. She really helped me. Carol Dixon-Smith, her name is. Um, but again, you've got to be bold to do that. Mm. And I was very lucky. Waterstones don't do signings like that for unknowns now. No, you handed it to the exact right person. By the I did, things. who liked reading. She was obsessive with reading. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, in terms of carving out time to write at the same time, particularly as a self-published author, but regardless really of what route you're going down, like juggling, you know, you how much time do you spend going into places and, and, you know, being bold like that? How much time do you spend networking on social media? You know, how, how do you know what's useful and what's actually yeah. going to be wasting time you could be writing? Yeah. I mean, I do have to say, I think for the last 10 years, there's not been a day gone by where I haven't promoted, sent a promotional tweet in the morning, maybe. And people mm. probably get sick of it, but actually, again, it's different audiences. And um, that's what I've done. I've never sort of been out of the public eye. Um, even though I'm known as the invisible author, not many people have heard of me because I'm mainly an ebook success. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, I think there's still, you know, you don't encounter self-publishing when you're watching cultural shows on television or reading newspapers and you know all those kind of traditional forms of yeah. where you find out about entertainment yeah. are kind of blissfully ignoring or unaware. Yeah, and that's what Millie was saying on her, in her article that, um, and she was saying, would you be interested in a program? And I thought. Gosh, if we could commission something where it's normal books with with normal writers who aren't on this pedestal, that it is our job, and and we write books for a living, and we're not these people who are unapproachable. That, that's what we do. We put words in order, and people read them. Yeah, no, it's it's strange, isn't it? But I mean, I suppose some of the slack's been taken up a little bit by um, like booktubers and and online communities of of readers who yeah. are kind of you know covering and reviewing books that don't get the attention yeah definitely and book bloggers are amazing and another thing I found that for my success is I always do a blog tour I use a lady called Rachel Gilby Rachel's Random Resources and if people aren't aware of a blog tour literally I go to Rachel I said this is my new book coming out and she will get say 50 bloggers on board the first two weeks of publication, they will either write an article or I would write an article for them or they review. And then it gets retweeted and the snowball then of how many people reach. I am sure that's how Corner Shop in Cockery Bay did get its first massive reach, mm -hmm. um, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, so to, to come up to date, after you know, we've, we've spent half an hour talking about your massive success in self-publishing and how it's gone <laughs> extremely well and you, you went that way because the, the, the normal traditional publishing contracts, even if you do very well, you're still not going to be making enough money to be a full-time author, all this yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and then this year you've signed with Hodder and yeah. have two books out with them. So what, what happened there? What changed? Yeah, I, I'm sorry all self-publishers who I said I'm 
staying indie. Um, what happened was that Lorella went for lunch with um, an editor from Hodder and they discussed me, obviously. And then Lorella came back for her lunch and she said, um, Hodder want to sign you for a three book deal. Are you interested? I went, oh, well, you know, I was like moaning. I said, I don't think I want to do it. I don't want to give up the control. I, I, and anyway, this carrot was dangled in my face. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> and to write three books and also I think they realized I like to write fast and that I wouldn't wait a year a book and so they wanted these three books that were coming out six months six months six months and I had 18 months to write these three books so I kind of looked at it as um, an arm to my business that I would keep all of my rights and that mm -hmm. I would see what happened because I really wanted to get into bookshops and um even my lovely publisher, iBooks, they're a small publisher. They're not not—they're not looked at so much to get into supermarkets. It's really hard for smaller publishers. And give Hodder their due. I am in Tesco's and I was in Tesco's and Sainsbury's with, with the recent books. But I'm not going to lie. Um, it was the financial angle because I thought, okay, it, it, it's quick. And they said I could still write myself published books. So when I signed the contract, I quickly in five weeks wrote Christmas in Cockleberry Bay I wrote it in October and a week into November. I literally, I don't know how I did it. So I thought at least I'm hanging on to some self-published income that will come out at Christmas and for next year because I knew I'd have to wait for royalties, um, even though I'd got an advance. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was that really. It was let's try something new. Let's get into, let's get my name out there with paperbacks and try and get my name out there as an author, really. Mm. And I suppose because you write quickly, and it sounds like that's what Hodder was after as well, yes. you know, getting the trilogy out uh, yeah. nice and quick but because of that you knew that this was going to be something that would be like a year and a half two years of your time uh, yeah. you know a, a contained thing it wasn't like you were signing away a decade of of writing no exactly and yeah and I am denied right up until the final minute of signing I'm not going to lie to you and um yeah it's done now and I can't believe it I actually yeah, sent the final edits back last week for the third book so mm -hmm. It's been intense. I'm really tired, actually, to actually write for somebody else for that amount of time. I think it, when you're writing for a publisher, I obviously was mindful that this has got to be great. There, there are going to be things in my Cockery Bay books that aren't probably politically correct and things like that that I've got away with. But, yeah, it was um, – yeah, and there's some words I've used that have been cut. And I'm like, oh, no, I wanted to say that. But the editors are great. Obviously, it's still my book, but they suggest things – and I did think at first, this was my fear, that things would be suggested that I would really hate. But actually, a lot of the suggestions have been very good. So on a positive, to have a different editor's eyes on it from the editor I had before, it's, yeah, it's great. And I think the books have been very much improved. But when people haven't worked with editors, the, the yeah. fear is that they're going to like tear your book apart and turn it into something yeah. else when a good editor will actually help you make your book the best it can be. Yeah. And they make suggestions, and you don't have to go with them all. Um, for example, in this one, she wanted me to add in a scene because I'm doing life drawing classes, and she said, I think maybe you should add an extra one. But my character had had enough, and she'd stopped them, and I thought, no, that doesn't make it right. So because I know the book inside and out, and I think obviously you write as well, you do. I know every single bit of my book. It's really weird. It's like you climb in it, and you kind of know what's going to work, whereas anyone external reading it is never going to feel that book like you do. 
Yeah, no. Yeah, when you're writing it, it's, it's a slightly strange thing that can happen in your brain where it feels like you're visiting a particular place. And when you finish the book, you're like, oh, I don't get to go there again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, presumably, I mean, you've sort of touched upon it, but like working with a, a team uh, and a kind of external team uh, must be quite different in terms of the day-to-day writing. So did, did you feel that kind of added pressure? Did it help? Did it get in the way? Did it not really make a huge difference? Um, I mean, I think to be honest, because it was lockdown, I was allowed to get on with it. And the editor only gets involved when it is editing time. Um, so I guess it didn't really make any difference. I found the writing process completely torturous with these three because I've kind of, usually it's my idea and my timeline but this was, wow, these were set deadlines in stone that I had to, mm. to hit. And I did feel that pressure. Um, yeah. And I'm the person that even if maybe you could have asked for a bit of an extension, I never would because I just, I'm committed to delivering on time. So a big part of this was getting books into places that previously had been tricky. So, because although you had print versions of your book, yeah, that was presumably on a, a, a relatively small scale and a very kind of manual process of you trying to yeah, get it Yeah, iBooks, iBooks have got me in Amazon and they've got me in, um, in Blackwest and in smaller bookshops. But, I mean, I just kind of had the conversation and I said, oh, wait until – with Hodder, Hodder will get me in there because they are Hodder. And, mm. and it's, it's, it's wrong in a way because it's still my books, which are obviously good books, and the Cocklebury should have been up there on the, on the shelves as well. But because, just because it's a smaller publisher, but that's the way the publishing industry is. It's people look to the name. Mm-hmm. But even then, I think the supermarket slots, I've been told, are still really few and far between. So there's still a struggle even with the big five. And this is another thing. I think celebrities and people who are going to sell the massive number of books are always going to be represented because why wouldn't they be? Because it's a commercial industry. And that's when the independents come in who are amazing because they support their local authors. Yes, they want to make their bucks as well, but I think it's a lot more of a personal service. Yeah, and absolutely. We're uh, based in Norwich and Norwich has an amazing selection of independent bookstores, which you know all have slightly different personalities and the staff that work there love books and can recommend anything you could possibly want uh, and, and things you don't expect. And yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is lovely. But then again, I do think... As an author, you need to be friends with these bookshops and you need to sort of make yourself visible to them because obviously people buy people and if you want to be serious about it, it is it is a business. And people think, oh, they probably cringe at me saying that because once somebody way back, a really successful businessman, he said, when I wasn't sort of selling as many, he said, keep putting the products on the shelf. Your books are your products. The more products you've got, the more chance you've got of selling more. And he's he was so right because now, obviously, I've got 15. Even if you're selling not so many of each, you're still earning an income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a cumulative thing, isn't it? I yeah. mean, everything I've read about self-publishing is very much that, you know, if you, if you, could, if you write the kind of stuff that suits a series – which which has yeah. multiple books then that's the way to actually turn it into something that is kind of supportive of, of your lifestyle yeah and funnily enough no the corner shop in cockery bay wrote this completely as a standalone it's beautifully tied up at the end <laughs> so so much so i had to i thought oh goodness me it's done so well i've got to write a, a sequel and then obviously the sequel did really well and then so it was the trilogy and then i added the christmas book 
And now I'm even thinking, because I'm sort of thinking what to write next. Do I put another Cockleberry Bay out there? Because everyone's asking me for one. And mm. Scott Pack, going back to him, had always said to me, that could go on forever, Cockleberry Bay, because people love the setting. They love the characters. You just, almost like a soap opera, you just, different things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, any any author that kind of has a long running series, you know, do you, do you, as a writer, start to want to go and do other things, but you know, the, the business side of it and, and demands of readers kind of pull you back towards the series? How do you balance those yeah, two kind of creative I mean, impulses? This is the thing now, because I've written the four Cockleberries and now there's three in the Fairy Lane Market series. I am in this situation now as in, where do I go next? What, what do I do? And part of me wants to write a standalone exemplary novel now that, that is like another number one bestseller. Um, I'm also in talks with a screen Right, as well, uh, yeah, to maybe turn Cockleberry Bay into a screenplay. I mean, I'd love to see it on the on the on the screen. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is it. What am I going to write next? Answers on a postcard, please. Yeah, I'm in that. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not sure if I want to carry on. I'm, Fairy Lane Market is done because that's the hotter three book deal. I could dip back to Cockleberry. Would I want to start writing another series? I don't know actually. Mm. Are you ever tempted to go back to some of your earlier books, the ones that came out prior to the kind of sudden massive success of Cockbow? I am actually. I mean, I wrote one called The School Gates, which at the time won an award at the Festival of Romance, and it's a really good book. And I kind of was thinking it is coming out again as a paperback via iBooks because um, they're bringing them out and recovering them, to be honest. But maybe, yeah, to do another push on those because – and that—that that is, it does show you, doesn't it? My Cockabrees Fairy Lane Market doing so well – those other books are still good, but because I'm not doing anything to promote them, they are just sat on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So you're right. That's it. I've got enough that I could keep marketing what I've got. And maybe, yeah, yeah you've triggered me to think, yeah, that's the thing <laughs> I could do. I, it's been at the back of my mind that I'm like, oh, no, but, yeah, it would make sense. And just going back to you know, Millie Johnson's blog, you know, as a writer of romance and you know, romantic comedies, I think, readers absolutely adore that, that genre but it's a, it's one of several genres that quite often get short thrift elsewhere yeah. do, do you think uh particularly over the last couple of years with with everyone in stuck in lockdowns you know do you do you think that your books in particular have struck a chord you know is it the kind of you know is it is it kind of a reassuring place to go for readers yeah, I, I definitely think so and it's a bit like Christmas films I watched Christmas in the castle with Brooke Shields I've never in it's just slushy, not much happens, but it's just a mind, you, you takes your mind away. Yeah, and I really do think that. And, and quite a few men I've got um, reviews from probably never would have picked my book up, but lockdown, it was, and they've seen the reviews, I'll give it a go. Yeah, and, and, and it's a bit like Millie would say this as well. We write about death. I, I've written about um, infertility. Um, yeah, early bereavement I wrote about, um, dating. I kind of, It's all about issues that happen to everyone in everyday life. They're not just like, oh, boy meets girl. Mine certainly are. There, there's always a troubled um, heroine and she overcomes things and she doesn't necessarily have good relationships with the people around her. They aren't just fluffy. So, And do you think there's any potential, you know, particularly with self-published books, I suppose, you know, do you see any potential on the horizon for more mainstream coverage of self-published books and, and, and romance and, you know, the, 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 the more entertaining side of books, I suppose. Or I really do you think- so. um, And I think maybe Millie saying it's kicking that off. I wish I'd kick that off. Um, I'm going to have a <laughs> chat with her actually, because 
I'm an everything is possible kind of person. And I think it would make for good TV. I mean, I'm not sure where it would, would fit in this broadcasting schedule, but people are looking for content now. Look how many channels we've got. And I think readers would love it. So looking looking to the future and what you're up to next, I mean, it sounds like you've got lots of options in terms of specific books, but it, um, what, one thing I was curious about before we started talking is whether traditional publishing was your thing now, but it sounds like that was a very kind of precise project and that self-publishing is going to still be a big part of what you do. I mean, never say never. Basically with my contract, my next book, I show to Hodder and if they want it, they can offer me. Um, Mm -hmm. It's my decision. I always used to see myself as a penguin author. That was my dream. (laughs) Um, I don't know why I just did because I used to read loads of penguin books as a kid. Penguin was Mm -hmm. one of the main publishers, wasn't it, when I was younger? Um, I'm not going to never say never with, with going with a publisher again. Um, but I do love self-publishing. I love the control. I love the lack of pressure with deadlines. I like being able to check my sales figures every day. Um, mm-hmm. I like to put something out there that comes completely from my heart. It sounds like you're in the best possible position, really, uh, being able to select that. And presumably, you know, going back to that early uh, multi-book offer you had right at the start of your career if you'd gone down that road um a lot of what has subsequently happened would have been closed off that wouldn't have been possible completely and I think everything that's happened in my writing journey has been for a reason like I do think with life and I always say persistence um over resistance to everybody because wherever wherever you're from you you, yeah you if you've got like the passion to be a writer yeah you, you can do it Thank you very much, Nicola. Oh, it's been lovely talking to that you. That was a fascinating insight. And yes, your books are all available on Amazon, including the two new ones that are coming from Hodder. Uh, and when's the third book in that trilogy? Yeah, so Starry Skies in Fairy Lane Market is out now. And, and it's got a Christmassy theme. So it's a good Christmassy book. And Rainbow's End in Fairy Lane Market is out in April next year. Amazing. Thank you. Well, yeah, thank you so much. I think there's going to be lots of people who are now going to be debating whether to go self-publishing, traditional publishing, do one, then the other, or, yeah. (laughs) Okay, and if they want to ask me any questions, yeah, I'm at Nicola May one on Twitter. Fantastic. All right, thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Nicola for joining us on the show. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre, National Centre for Writing on Facebook. And don't forget to head over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk to find out about all of our programmes, our events and to sign up to our newsletter. As a UK registered charity, we do rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by going to the Support Us page. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review it if you get a chance as well. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you next week.